Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. After fleeing from Iran in 2013, Kurdish-Iranian journalist Beirouz Bouchani became a political prisoner. Detained indefinitely in legal limbo in the Australian-run Manos Regional Processing Centre, Papua New Guinea. On a smuggled mobile phone, he chronicled six years of survival and witness, tapped out in Farsi in a series of single messages, and subsequently translated into English by Omid Tofigian. The result, Buchani's against all odds, no friend but the mountains, writing from Manos Prison, has been much fated, winning Australia's richest literary prize, the Victorian Prize for Literature, as well as a host of other awards. The Melbourne Age called it an intense, lyrical and psychologically perceptive prose poetry masterpiece. Now resident in New Zealand, Buchani spoke with Julie Hill in a session supported by Platinum patrons Carol and Gerard Curry. We hope you enjoy this. Welcome to this session, No Friend But The Mountains, <laughs> and welcome to Beirut's Botani. A little admin before we start. Uh, if you could turn your phones off or keep them on silent, uh, if you could scan your QR code, the QR code, uh, or manually do so. If you uh, would like to wear a, wa- a mask, feel free. Uh, and if you're feeling unwell at any point, please leave. <laughs> I guess there's no polite way to say that. Um, I'd like to thank our platinum patrons, Carol and Gerard Curry, for their support of the, the festival and for this session. Baruz Bhutani is a Kurdish-Iranian writer, filmmaker, poet, activist, and documentarian whose book, No Friend But The Mountains, documents his dangerous journey by boat from Indonesia to Christmas Island and subsequent years of incarceration on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea at a place Australians refer to as an offshore processing centre, but which Beirut more truthfully calls a prison. The entire book, somewhat famously now, you'll know it was written in secrecy on his phone via WhatsApp messages, a feat the Australian writer Richard Flanagan describes as a miracle of courage and creative tenacity. Australia is the only country in the world with a policy of mandatory detention and offshore processing of asylum seekers. It's a policy that has enjoyed bipartisan support in Australia and which came into force just a few days 
after Beirut arrived in Australian territory. When the centre on Manus closed in 2017, Beirut and his fellow asylum seekers were left in limbo in Port Moresby, PNG capital. Then in 2019, he was invited to Aotearoa as a guest of the Word Writers Festival in Christchurch and made it into the country after a long, anxious journey. Happily, as you can see, he remains with us in New Zealand to this day where he's now been granted asylum and is adjunct senior research fellow with the Naitahu Research Centre at the University of Canterbury. So much talking from me. You'll uh, get a chance at the end of this session to ask a question of Beirut, um, and there'll be a book signing following the session as well. Merhaba, Beirut. Welcome to the Auckland Writers' Festival. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think I should say that it is not the first time I visit Auckland. So, um, three years ago, through the movie Choke Up List the Last Time, that before the book I made with my colleague Arash uh, Kamali Sarvastani, so he is based in Netherlands. Uh, so, that is a movie but it's about 19 minutes about uh, uh, Manus Island, about the indigenous people there too, not only the refugees. So, yeah, I was visited <laughs> New Zealand through that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, uh, yeah, if people haven't seen the movie, Choka, please tell us the time. You not only wrote an entire book on your phone on Manus Island, but you, you made a movie as well. Um, can you tell us about this symbol of Choka, it's a, it's a special symbol for the indigenous people on the island and it has another meaning as well. Can you tell me a bit about that and maybe also your relationship to the indigenous people on the island who, who you've described as um, victims as well of, of, of Australia's detention policy? Yeah, I think, uh, so, and the policy towards the refugees, I mean, the, we call it, I call it, exile policy to banish the refugees to Manus Island and to Nauru and uh, in Christmas Island. So when that became an issue, actually, and uh, so the media, we got attention from the media and from the, uh, the public, and like, human rights uh, defenders and organizations involved in that, so it became an issue. One of the things that they always talk about the refugees, so, and uh, even in their reports, when they release their reports, they write about it. Uh, no one really talk about the indigenous people there, and I think that is very important for, for me, it was important that to raise this so as a chord with a similar background, I mean, with the colonialism system, that I grew up in that system. 
it was uh, very important for me to raise that issue too. So that's why, so in the movie actually is, I think it's mostly about the indigenous people. So, uh, so Choka actually is a bird in Manus Island, which only lives in Manus Island. So even doesn't live in other parts of the Papua New Guinea. And for indigenous people there, for Manusian people is a symbol. It is the custom, it is their identity. And so, but uh, Australia actually uh, created the solitary confinement for the refugees and they punished the refugees there. And they named that uh, prison Choka. So it means that they used their identity, you know, Choka as a respectful bird or concept or custom. They use it and they name it to a prison. And in a symbolic way. Not just a prison, way, it was a solitary Yeah, 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 exactly, right? yeah. Oh. So Choka actually was a scary place for the refugees. So when they put someone in Choka, it was really, yeah, so everyone feels sorry <laughs> for him. So I mean, that, that is symbolic was important for me to, I mean, Choka. Yeah, that how they are using that island for their political aim. So in yes. fact, they are actually using those people and Manusian people. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful film if you, if you have the chance to, to see it. Um, the book starts with your second attempt to reach Australia. Um, but I wanted to ask you about your life in Iran directly before that. Uh, you're a political science graduate, and you were you founded a magazine, a Kurdish language magazine. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about that, the kinds of articles that you were writing then, obviously at great risk to yourself. Yeah, I think, uh, so I was doing different works, different kind of journalism works. And, uh, but that magazine actually, that uh, magazine, so the work there actually uh, ended up in my journey. So I had to leave Iran. So that magazine, and we published it just three times. So it was not a long, but we were sure, because in Iran, the Kurdish language is not a formal language. So that's why I say this, uh, they, it's a colon, colonialist system, yeah. So that's why, so the Kurdish language and other languages are not formal languages. So we, just some, some of, uh, some journalists and writers, we decided to do something, yeah. So we work in that magazine just to educate people because our big problem, biggest problem in that area of Kurdistan in Iran is uh, assimilation process. So if that system actually continues like this, uh, we, we lose the language and culture and identity. So 
we couldn't really tolerate that. So we, have, we started to resist in our way. So we work in that magazine just to educate people, just to teach people to respect their own language. Um, but we were sure, we were aware that in that dictatorship, that religious dictatorship system, they are not going to tolerate us. And even we didn't want to make money with that because people couldn't, most of people couldn't read in Kurdish. So, but we had to do it. So we started to work on it. But after three times, yeah, they attacked our office and they arrested some of my colleagues. And so they jailed some of them later. So that's why, yeah. That was my work, so I had to leave Iran, really. If we could talk about language, uh, the way you wrote the book in Farsi, yeah. and you, you sent messages to Omer Tufigian in Australia, your translator, uh, and his translation of it in English is kind of a miraculous feat in itself. The way that you read it in English is that it's separated into poetry and prose, but actually that's not how you wrote it in Farsi. Can you explain how that came to be? Yeah, you know, the Farsi language is a very poetic language. And actually, the, in Kurdish language, in Farsi language or Arabic language, you know, they have a, these languages have a long, uh, tradition, yeah, poetry, yeah, so it is a long, it's a, actually the main part of the culture, I think. So that's why I think in Australia people call me a poet and I, I don't recognize myself as a poet. Yeah, because uh, in Iran, actually, uh, most of people are familiar with uh, poetry. You know, and people really know, and many people live with poetry. So it's very important uh, cultural element in Iran. So when you write, actually, we, our writers actually sometimes they resist they, to write in a way to don't become poetic, you know? So it's very, uh, really, in any way that you write, even, you know, now sometimes, if I write a political articles, yeah, sometimes there is a layer of uh, poetry. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's like an important thing. A part of it actually is written to the language that, because I didn't write those poetry. Uh, so Omid was, uh, Omid told me that he cannot really to translate it those parts that become uh, poetic, because all of the book is not poetic, some part of it is poetic. And he said that it's better that, uh, because English is not capable, that he do that, does that. And also the problem is with Farsi is that the Farsi structure, the sentences are long, so it's really difficult to do that. So he decided to translate it in that way to poetry. So that's why we have some 
yeah, poems in the book. Yeah, mm. but in the original one, actually, it's not like that. It's all poetry, pretty much, isn't it? I don't know. People, <laughs> yeah, just readers should say that. I'm sure that lots of us would love to be able to read it in the original language. Um, you dedicate the book to Janet Galbraith, uh, who's an Australian poet uh, and writer um, and founder of Writing Through Fences. Um, Janet, I haven't met her, but she seems like a very amazing person who was very, very supportive of a lot of the men on Manus, and she also helped your writing reach the rest of the world um, through publication in The Guardian and, and, other, and other publications. Can you tell me a little bit about Janet and her project and, and what kind of person she yeah, is? Yeah, I think, so Janet actually, it was the first person that I met through internet. So from, I mean, Australia. So she, yeah, we were working together for many years on different projects. So I mean, activities. And one of the projects that Janet uh, has been working on is writing through fences. And yeah, I have a particular article about that project that she actually, she approached the refugees in detention in Australia and in Indonesia and in the region, actually. And she asked them to write or she collect their works. You know, so now after more than seven years, so we have a huge uh, source of material, yeah, of the writing by the, and artworks by the refugees. So that is what Janet did. So I think the, her work is important <clears throat> because I think what we are doing, so as a indigenous people, or I don't know, minorities, marginalized people, refugees, I think we are, I mean generally I, I say, we are representing the dark part of the history. And we are re representing the unofficial history. So that is my understanding. So the official history is a history that the colonizer writes. And they introduce the, themselves or the country, doesn't matter where, you know. They introduce the country or the, themselves in that way. So always our, this part of history is marginalized. So actually we are representing that part of the history. So what Janet is doing or has done, I think is important because she collected uh, the a part of the history, I mean, actually is a, that historical period. So she collected this material, so I think that is important that we have these materials. So now we are working on them, yeah, we can't talk about them, yeah. Because the projects that we are doing, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, because there's a great deal of art that has come from Manus Island, there's your film, there's your book, 
there's a play which yeah. um, I believe was performed in Tehran, uh, the comics by Eaton Fish as well, uh, a young, a young yeah, man yeah. who was there. Um, yeah, can you tell me about how, how art, how creativity helped you process what was happening? Yeah, I think, so I look at all of these works actually through uh, the concept of resistance. So if we have a big picture about this, that a country like Australia banished people to those islands and keep them in prison to a very tiny island in the middle of uh, ocean, which is the biggest ocean in the world. Mm -hmm. So I, I look at this like that, that how that island, the small island, actually uh, challenged the bigger island, which is Australia. How they banished these people on base of actually a negative or a propaganda that these people are, uh, you know, potential terrorists, they are dangerous, they are criminals, they are rapists, they are, you know, drug dealers. They say all of this about us. And we actually push them back and challenge them through art and literature. And I think that is really important. I mean, the way that the refugees, I'm not talking about only myself. I'm talking about the refugees in Manus Island, Laru. I think that is important that after seven years, six years, we see that who is criminal. Yeah, you know? I look at them actually as a resistance, you know? It is a kind of resistance that actually creates knowledge or a new language. Uh, I think that is important, just if we look at the whole picture, yeah. But of course, we actually, we survive, I mean, the refugees survive through uh, creativity. You know, because in that context, in that prison, uh, when you write, and doesn't matter that you write or you draw or this, in that prison, that system that designed to control the refugees, and you feel pressure and torture, I mean, when you are creating something, and that sometimes is like even humor. When some of the refugees just do a, like a stand-up and have a comedy, you know, they share some stories with others and make them laugh for a moment. You know, all of this kind of performance, dance, and we have musicians too, music, you know, singing, you know, this kind of thing actually uh, is, a kind, is a resistance in front of that system, you know, to create some beauty. And that's why I say that I myself, I survived through writing, yeah. 
The dancing reminds me, of course, of Mazam the Whore, the yeah. colourfully yeah. named, very colourful character who, uh, who, who performed his resistance. Can you tell me a bit about him? Yeah, I, I, yeah may, <laughs> I don't know that for people who read the book, they know him. <clears throat> so Mazam the Whore actually is a, is a character that he's uh, like funny. Yeah, so he... Uh, I think he he's very important in this context, you know, that how he play with the rules. Because the I am talking about the systematic torture. I am talking about torturing people through a bureaucratic system inside that prison, through many rules. So that so you have to stay in the line, for example for very simple things, just for getting a razor, you have to stay in the line, you know? For seeing a doctor, you should go through a bureaucratic system. You should write, then they search your body many times, then you see a doctor and they do nothing, you know? I mean, through these uh, rules, this system, Someone like Mason the whore, he's playing with the system. You know, he's playing with the system, and that is important. That how we should resist in front of this kind of system. So I am not only talking about Manus prison system. We have many Manus prison system out in this society too. You know, for example, one of them is a airport. You know. <laughs> So when you go to the airport, actually for actually, yeah, it's a crazy system. Anytime I go to the airport, yeah, I just, that reminds me of uh, Manus. You don't like wearing the mask. <laughs> I, no, no, I mean with different rules and they check your bodies, they, mm. they look at you as a threat. You know, I, I know that there are lots of studies about this, yeah. Um, even in the universities, I'm working in the university, you know, this, that system, so in the university, is like a, you know, this now is become like a place for business. Yeah, that is my understanding of... Uh, and many stupid rules that you can... Yeah, many rules that we want exists. to do a small event, you should go through a process and answer one million emails. Just do it. Yeah. I mean, you characterize people like Mazam. You have a funny little name for everybody in the book. Um, you don't really speak about your own role, I guess, in the camp, but it seemed to me, especially when I was reading your articles in The Guardian and so on, that you were kind of a big brother or an uncle to a lot of people in there. People said to you, Beirut, when are we going to get out of here? Beirut, what, what about this US refugee swap deal? Is it just another trick that they're playing on us? Questions that you couldn't possibly answer. You were a young man yourself. You still, you still are, yeah. uh, I should say. Uh, 
<laughs> compared to yeah, some of us, at least. <laughs> Um, but how, how hard was it to have that responsibility to take that role on? I think, uh, so in the book, actually, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't, didn't want that people really feel the writer, but I think people feel it, you know. But uh, that is, uh, I think I should talk about this, that this system that we are talking about actually is for people who look at it from outside. They think that all of these refugees, uh, they are same people, and they actually they categorize refugees, just look at them as a refugees in or manus prison refugees or manus island refugees. But Actually, inside the camp, uh, there are lots of people with different backgrounds. Uh, yeah, very different. So in that system, actually, uh, I mean, the system designed to create competition between the detainees mm -hmm. and create hate to divide that small community. So it's not simple. From outside, you think, oh, these people, all of them love each other. But it's not like that. In that system, the detainees have a paradoxical feeling towards each other. First is they hate each other. So there is a kind of hate in that system. Because you become tired of your, even your partner you know, if you live together 24 hours for six years, you become tired. So in that system, these detainees, they, you have to stay in the line for everything. So you should live with everyone, hundreds of men, for many years. Of course, you become tired. And the system actually creates a situation, a space that these people be in competition, sometimes for a small thing, like for food. So if you don't stay in the line, and you'll be in the end of the line, you cannot get a good food with good quality. So of course, when that happens every day, for everything, that put pressure on uh, I mean, that create this feeling. But there is a brotherhood culture too that these detainees actually, they like each other too. Because they, they need to get support from each other. So they support each other. Especially in that moment when they do a get together against the system. And that happened when they do protests, for example. You know, when they do a hunger strike together, when they do a protest, they, that, Brotherhood culture is very yeah, important, and they love each other, they support each other. So, I mean, it, there is a paradoxical feeling and relationship between the detainees. So, you just put me in that context as a, someone who is writing or he is, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, in the media, you know, for example. Yeah. 
they should answer, but of course it's very difficult for me. One of the most difficult thing in that context was when people approach me and say, where, when we are going to leave this island, when we get freedom. That is very difficult because everyone just asks me that question every day, many times. Yeah, you know, I mean, in that context, so that's why I had to protect my border. Because in the, that small place, you should have your own space. If you lose your space, actually you cannot be creative, you cannot write, you can yes. So that was a, like public pressure on me always, every day. You talk about these endless queues as well, standing in queues to see the doctor. You had problems with your teeth, you had toothache, yeah. you wanted to see a dentist. There was no dentist, but you queued and queued and queued, yeah, yeah. and they told you that there would be one coming. So, I mean, that system, so I'm talking about, so we have that system in the health system outside too. Mm. I mean, even in New Zealand, mm. you know? So the reason I refer to the society, I mean the free world, is that Manu's prison system was an original version of a system to take your identity and freedom, you know? So that was the original version. So Manus is a like case study that we should understand it. We should think about it. We should study it and do research about it to look at it in different angles, different perspective. You know, if we understand that, we yeah, we understand our society better. You know, I I think I should refer you to a story that I did about the uh, movie I, Daniel Blake. So I, Daniel Blake is a movie made by Ken Luch. Mm, great movie, beautiful movie. So I compare Manus Prison with that movie. Yes, yeah. You know? So, so if you haven't seen it, there's an older man who's been made unemployed. And yeah. He's trying to be employed again, but he has to use the internet and he goes through this excruciating, long process to try and get himself a job and yeah, I know. And a crazy process that he is actually is facing, just he is dealing with the robots. So even you don't see people, you know? So when you have a problem, you should call, and always you should deal with the robots, and always they are polite. That is the problem, you know? So, in Manus prison system, so the people there, the officers, the guards there, people think that they were, every day they swear at us. No, they were polite, you know? Most of the time they were polite. So, I, Daniel Blake, actually, he died finally, he died in the, their office. He died in that place that he was trying and fighting to get support from them. 
you know, that is, I think, is interesting about that movie. New Zealanders think of ourselves as kind. We've been trying to make it our trademark a little bit lately. Uh, and you also might have noticed that we like to think we're better than Australia on a number of different social issues. But actually, in New Zealand, we take, even though we've recently doubled the refugee quota here, we still take a very small amount of refugees compared to the rest of the world. And we put asylum seekers in jail, not offshore, but we put around 15 asylum seekers in jail every year, and they stay there for about six months, some longer. Are New Zealanders as kind as we think we are? Uh, it's really... I, I don't categorize people. So, of course, in New Zealand, we have different people. Yeah. <laughs> that is a very diplomatic answer. Thank you. No, I, no I'm not a good diplom diplomat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the first day I arrived in <clears throat> New Zealand, so the, my story actually became a political story for a while. So I had to be strategic, you know, and just don't feed the media. Yeah. Mm. So it was interesting. I said something that the, the, my advisor told me, don't say that in New Zealand. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I was talking about the uh, New Zealand offer to take the refugees from uh, Manus Island or Nauru or in Australia. And I think still I, 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 still I say that, I believe in what I said, that actually New Zealand uh, for many years, because probably you are aware that there is an agreement between Australia and New Zealand that New Zealand take 150 refugees from uh, Manus Island, Nauru, and those places each year, yeah, per year. And Australia said, okay, these people, they can go everywhere, but not New Zealand, because they use New Zealand as a backdoor and to come to our country. So New Zealand always offered this. New Zealand for many years say that uh, our offer is on the table. And always Australia said no, and they said okay. So that thing is, I think is interesting because New Zealand actually has created a beautiful picture of itself um, and doing nothing, you know? <laughs> you know what, what I mean? I say that in Australia, one of the reasons that actually in Australia many advocates, many people, human rights, uh, you know, defenders, or even the refugees. You know, if you go to ask the refugees from Manus, uh, that they are in America, for example, now, if you ask them, what do you think about New Zealand? It's, it's a very good country. Mm. Because that repeated, 
lots of time, many times they said, oh, New Zealand is going to take these people. Actually, nothing happened here. You know, you, New Zealand got credit for doing nothing. That is the story. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, some people say that, so if Australia accepts that, uh, New Zealand is really, yes, but New Zealand at least, so they said Australia should make decision. I, we know that already, but New Zealand should uh, at least do something, actually uh, put pressure a little bit. We know that these two countries are very, we should then expect from New Zealand to, uh, you know, put pressure on Australia very, very strongly and damage the thing. We don't expect that. But we expect that New Zealand say something seriously, not just go there and say, okay, so our offer is on table. And they said, no, we don't want, okay, well, let's go to, that, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And now we see that Australia is treating New Zealand in a way that they have been treating the refugees. We have seen that, you know. Well, that's right, because we have... There, there were some stories, like two months ago. We have ago. the 501... Yeah. The 501s who, if you don't know, are the New Zealand-born Australians who are, have committed a crime, most of them in Australia, and are being deported now to New Zealand, and they are also being detained offshore and within Australia for years on end as well. Peter Dutton, the Liberal Party politician in Australia, I can think of a few other words to describe him as well, to be honest, uh, is an enthusiastic supporter of, of, of that policy and he recently described that policy as taking out the trash. And you know, our Prime Minister has, has called it a corrosive policy, but as you say, otherwise has, has, has done nothing. And I guess this isn't really for you to answer, but I do, do, I do wonder if, if you think that we should be more critical to an old friend. Yeah, exactly, because people think that this issue is only for the refugees. We are not talking about the refugees. It is about the values. It is about the principles. So that's why I say that to people, the civil society in Australia, that you are not fighting for the refugees when they do protest or they criticize the system. Actually, they are fighting, struggling for their, uh, you know, the values, you know? So, I mean, what Australia has done and is doing has damaged New Zealand too, damaged the whole region. And now, and now Australia became an example that now someone like uh, Tony Abbott, the former prime minister, yeah, he, I, I think you know him, yeah. He was the stop, stop the boats was basically his... Yeah, this crazy man, he is in Europe and he's advertising for this policy. Mm. And now he introduced this policy to uh, UK. Mm. 
and now they are following this. So they're considering. They the are same considering, policy. yeah, to do that. So I mean, it's not an issue, a matter only for the refugees. You know, it is about principle. You know, the like the main uh, like values, humanity. Yeah, we should really loudly say to Australia. No, you shouldn't do this. I mean, no one should be silent in front of this injustice. Yeah, that is what I believe, and I think. Whatever happened to Maisam the whore? Oh, it is a very long story. Is it? <laughs> you saw him again? <laughs> no, no, it's better we... Yeah, yeah it's very complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. So if I answer that question, yeah, well, I should say something else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, something that I guess you can see is, is, and that I've realized recently about you is that you're funny. You're very funny and... It made me think of the kind of writer that you, that you can be now, that you're safe and you're free. You've written so much about Manus. You've spoken so much about Manus. You just did <laughs> an event uh, for Australia directly before this. But now that you can write anything, what will you write? Um, I'm excited about this project that you're talking about, short stories. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, so first I should explain, I think that creates some misunderstanding about Maysan the Whore. Because oh, Maysan okay. the Whore <laughs> doesn't exist, actually. He doesn't exist? No. Because he wasn't exist, just I created him. Yeah. Ah, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, so because I had to actually protect the detainees, so yeah. I couldn't write about, so I had to just I mix some characters and create a new character, but in but that But there was context, dancing? Yeah, because some yes. people were dancing, some people were singing. Yeah, so some he's people kind of were a funny, so I mixed them, I created mm -hmm. a new character. This is yeah, what writers do. <laughs> you know, I mean them. this, yeah, so, yeah, but uh, yeah, about the projects, uh, I think, so now I am working with, that's why I'm quite uh, critical with the uh, universities. Yeah, just I'm dealing with the universities, yeah, mostly online. Now in Canterbury, they are very nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about other universities, yeah. <laughs> Not really, yeah. So I'm working with uh, universities mostly internationally and in Australia. So that is one of the things that I do, that I do the event uh, online, sometimes do lecture. Because what, what I believe, I think it's very important. One of the things in this field is, uh, actually people forget about it, is that uh, marginalized people, so I use the marginalized people as a general uh, concept, so it can be a refugee or anyone who actually, uh, yeah, is marginalized, any kind of minorities, any groups. 
I think it's very important because the way a marginalized person understands politics and look at politics and society is unique, always is unique. That's why I say it is a value, it should be a value to be a minority. Because you understand, you, your perspective is unique, so it doesn't matter what you say, you know? So that's why what we are doing actually with OMIT, uh, we are working in a way to bring the, you know, this life experience of the refugees into the main discourse to the, you know, to create a knowledge, to create new language, you know? So we are doing that, just, but we are doing different projects in this context. So that's, that is my aim and work with the uh, researchers. And because you cannot just sit in the office and say, oh, I understand this. So we need people with, uh, who really experience this system to share their ideas. So that thing we are doing, but on based of different projects. And yeah. working with indigenous people in Australia as well. Yeah, yeah, so for example, now over the past, uh, so I have been here for, I don't know, more than a year. Two years? No, not two years, definitely. Yeah. More than a year. So I, yeah, for six, seven months, I was really sleeping, yeah. Mm. But uh, we have been working with uh, indigenous uh, artists and in Australia. So we, ha we have been, we work on a play that the uh, director and the uh, actors are indigenous. About, because what I said, that there is a link between the policy towards the refugees with the history of colonialism in Australia and colonialism mentality, you know? So that system exists in Australia and still is actually uh, torturing or killing Aboriginal people in that country, you know? So now lots of indigenous people are in custody. So that is a huge issue. It should be a huge issue. So we actually link between Manus and those custody in that play. So for example, a part of the play they use, uh, they adapted from the Mesa and the Whore, for example. Mm. That, that, Who's a yeah. made up person. Yeah, yeah. So, this, now I know. so this play actually, we had the first performance in uh, Perth, so hopefully we bring that to New Zealand one day, yeah. I hope so too. Yeah, um, uh, another work is a journal that we did with indigenous writers mm. and refugees. And writing fiction as well? Oh uh, yeah, that is, uh, I call it my own work. Yeah, yeah. So I want that to know about that. Uh, about my... About the fiction. Uh, the book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is a collection of short stories which I write in 
in Kurdish language, but Kurdish has four dialects. So one of these dialects is Kalhuri, which um, actually uh, it is a language or is a dialect which marginalized among the marginalized. So I mean, <laughs> because uh, other dialects, they have had this opportunity this chance to develop and survive. And so now, for example, in Sorani dialect, yeah, they translate, for example, uh, Heidegger to Kurdish, <laughs> you know, philosophy. So it is a very developed language. Yeah, but this language, this particular language that I'm working on actually most of people cannot read and write with that language. So probably this book that I'm writing, like 100 people read it. Right. <laughs> so what I am doing actually, I am working on this. So my aim just to create text, you know, for this uh, language, because I had this opportunity to work with nomadic people for a while, yeah, when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And the nomadic people, actually, they, they live uh, out of the education system. So this assimilation process happened through education system because the education system is in Farsi, you know? But these people, they, have distance with. So this language is more, I mean, the original dialect exists among that community. So I have had this opportunity to know this language. Yeah, so that's why just we are working to bring this language back or develop it. Yeah, so that thing I'm doing, but in the same time, yeah, hopefully I publish it in English too. I mean, translate it to English. Yeah. Fantastic. And the interesting thing, I sh for each story that I do, I should put a dictionary in end of it. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, we're ready, I guess, to take some questions. Yeah. From the floor, there's two microphones, and I believe there's some up there as well. Um, Head on up if you have a question. Hi. Hi. Uh, thanks, Spurs. Um Just got a question. You've spoken a lot about um, the culture of resistance and it being more keenly felt from an indigenous perspective because obviously they're subject to the conditions of oppression and, and it's much more keenly understood through them. My question is through a Western perspective, I kind of feel like some of our institutions, including education systems and stuff, kind of uh, teach us not to think freely for ourselves and are, and are conditioning us Westerners not to appreciate some of the conditions that we're actually subject to ourselves and especially in indigenous cultures. How do we teach that? culture of resistance more through our institutions and through people. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much for raising that. I, I really am learning from 
about New Zealand. So still I'm very new to see the different layers of the society. For example, just I recently I found out that in, uh, in New Zealand people are not direct, for example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so always I, anything that people say to me over the past year, just I say, oh, it's, I accept it. But probably it was not some part of it. So, I mean, it's really difficult for um, someone like me to see the different layer of the society. So I'm learning about New Zealand. So, especially with the Maori resistance. But what I know generally is that the problem, so still I should compare it with Australia, that really we need to uh, teach history, you know? History is very important, that we should recognize that history, you know? We should recognize, we should work in a way to recognize something wrong happened or we should rethink about the main concepts of the national identity. What is this national identity? We should think about it. So, and I think that happened just through history, that people should learn about history. You know, when you know, when you read about the history, I mean the process of decolonization happened because the first step is that you recognize it. You know, for our problem in Iran right now is that still people deny it. I know that in New Zealand there are people who deny, but it's very different. In Iran, you must have people deny it. So that, that is the huge problem. First, you should recognize that, accept that. In Australia, the system, I mean, people, the, they resist. They say, oh, we didn't do this on Aboriginal mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And even they say, oh, we did it, but it was not like this that you say. You know, I mean, that, that is very important, that we recognize the history. We be aware of what's happened. So that, sorry, it is a general answer. Yeah, because I really don't know New Zealand in terms of uh, what you said, yeah. We, uh, we wanted to ask a question? I don't really want to ask a question. I want to make a statement. I have... <laughs> sorry. I have met this beautiful man on an earlier occasion who's a great humanitarian. He applied to get refugee status in this country, and Peter Williams from Tauranga, a journalist, and Stuart Smith, the, M the national MP for Kaikoura, both said this man should go back to his own home. He should go back to his own country. So there are people in this country who are not kind, but thank you, and I hope this audience understands the life yeah, you Thank have. you. Oh, pardon me. Oh, sorry. Just put this. Um, oh, first, I want to um, say to you that I really admire you. And 
I'm also a former refugee, and I really feel your pain because I also lived many years in a refugee camp. But I came uh, to New Zealand in 2014. And um, I actually have two questions. I'm just emotional because a lot of the things that you say remind me a little bit of my journey to New Zealand. Um, so one of the things is that, um, as you were saying, when people live in these refugee camps, there is a lot of diversity in colors. Yet a lot of people often expect refugees to look in a specific way or to be in a specific manner. Because the people who place us in detention often forget that we are colorful, our colors fade, and our colors fade in those places, and we sometimes even forget who we are. So the question that I ask um, as a transgender refugee that was forced to live with other men, and being unable to be understood for who I was and not be respected, because other refugees might not understand my identity, how do you how do you define that division that might be created when they put a lot of people that is so colorful and different in such spaces 24-7 for multiple years? And this goes broadly in terms of religion, race, languages, and multiple ways of seeing the world. And my second question is, um, what advice you would give to someone like me to put my story somehow in a memory, because one day I would forget all the pain I have that I want the people to be aware of. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for raising. I think it's one of the very important issues so in that context, so especially, so I'm not talking only about Manus. You know, all of these camps or the places that they force everyone be together, I think is about LGBTQ plus people. So we had that people, that problem in uh, Manus. So, you know, I mentioned being marginalized among marginalized people or being minority among minorities. So I, for such a long time, because in that place, actually, the refugees, I mean, the LGBT, I, I, I don't remember that we had, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I guess there were like 50 people, but they had to uh, hide their identity because they were in a prison. You know, they were in a prison, and that was, uh, and also uh, according to the law in Papua New Guinea, they put them in the jail for 14 years. That law is exist, you know? So, I mean, in that situation, actually, I remember, so I refer you to the story that I wrote about uh, one of the people there. For many years, I was really trying to write about these people, you know? Not only people with, uh, I mean, transgender people or gay people, like 
just about find these minorities. Some of them, uh, you know, for example, with the nationality, they were minorities. You know, they were actually treating them in a differently. I mean, among the, the refugee community there, I mean. So there was a public pressure on them sometimes. So that story, for many years I wanted to do it. And I remember first story that Guardian did, Ben Doherty, my friend, he did that about gay people inside the camp. And uh, so when the story published, so on that time I was working as an unsor as an unknown source. Yeah, just mm. as I, yeah, just I helped him to write that story. And later we found out that actually they employed a detective to go inside the prison camp to find out who did this story, you know? Mm -hmm. They did that. And later I was thinking, what should I do, you know? because I knew some of them, but not all of them. And Janet told me, just write about this, that you cannot find them. Just, so I wrote a story, which I, yeah, I think it published in Guardian that time, about people there. And about a man, his name was uh, Alex, that he, I called him as a revolutionary a gay man who actually challenged the whole community inside the camp and they forced him to be silent. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. I'm so sorry we didn't get around to your question. Uh, thank you for coming. Ngamehi Sipas. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.